Welcome to Music and Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Moshe Lewis. I am ecstatic and delighted to be joined by a living legend. Gregory Williams is the founder of the multi-platinum award-winning group Switch. He has been in music for more than a minute, decades, and I'm so delighted to have you with us, Mr. Williams. Welcome. Thank you for the invite. I appreciate it. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Um, I want to talk about things that really kind of go back to the beginning because I think there's so much um, rich detail that a lot of what you have been through kind of can help illustrate um, so many key points for some of the young people today. Tell us about sort of growing up, if I'm not mistaken, in um, Grand Rapids, Michigan and, and your initial exposure and, and interest in music. Well, and you're correct. I was born and raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan and uh, born raised by a single mom you know, with four other siblings in the household. And my mom had 10 other siblings, all played instruments and sang. So that was wow. my immediate initial influence. My dad, who was not around much, but he lived a few blocks away. He had right. in and out access in my life. He was a jazz saxophonist. My mom was a gospel singer. Wow. So the influence was natural for me to, for me to get it. You know, and through the grant, fortunately, back at the time I was growing up, the public school system had music classes and things like that as well. So, you know, right. I mean, that even enhanced the opportunity and the, the growth thereof. So sure. uh, going through all of that and then growing up, getting in local bands. I had my own band at nine years old, believe it or not, in fourth grade. So, you know, I was going to be a musician, entertainer, no matter what. And right. fortunately, my surroundings afforded the, the training, you know, to get there. So being in that and being in bands, you know, local acts, uh, singing the stepping groups and local acts in, in Michigan kind of prepared me to get to switch as well. Sure. Who were some of those early musical influences that you were listening to when you were growing up? And give us a, a year setting too, like around the time you were nine, what year would this have been? Well, again, uh, up until probably my early teens, I was influenced by my family more so than anybody. Mm -hmm. You know, because my uncles and aunts, who actually were pretty much like my brothers and sisters, my mother was a young mom. Right. So some of my uncles and aunts, you know, were just a couple years, a few years older than me. That everybody played instruments. I mean, right. from trombone to trumpet to saxophone to violin to flute. So I mean, right. and I'm exposed to right. all of that. But right. as I began external of the family, right, I records West Montgomery. You know, mid yeah. uh, yeah. 70s, early 70s. I, I like classical music, Bernstein and Beethoven. And, wow. you know, I mean, whatever music was available, I gravitated towards it. In Grand Rapids during that period, also, there was not black radio. Right. So, no, all we had was rock radio. And so, therefore, I got exposed to certain things there too. But it was more pop music, Elton John and the Rolling right. Stones and those guys. 
but every bit of music, I just drank it up like water, you know, so I'm influenced by it overall. I never had any one specific person that I quote unquote idolized, but I did absorb from everybody. Sure. It's a tremendous leap to go from being an instrument player to actually having the concept of putting together your entire band, including the musicians. Tell us a little bit about that concept that I am going to put together one of the best bands that has ever been out there. That was your goal and your dream. You did it over and over again. That was my statement. You're absolutely right. Well, okay, keep in mind this. About 13 or 14 years old, my, one of my, my uncles, uh, and myself and my cousin and another guy formulated a group. Uh, but we were singing in stepping group. Although my uncle played trumpet and I played trumpet, we started to sing in stepping group. And we did that for a couple of years, won a lot of talent shows, realized we needed our own band. So we brought in, we brought guys in. And then on top of that, uh, after a year or so, my uncle Sylvester and I decided, well, maybe we should get some horns together. So we added a horn player, a saxophone player, and a, a, a two saxophone players. And he and I picked up our horns and started to play. Anyway, from that point on, I became sought out. So when that group, that aspect of that group broke up, because that group continued on, but I kind of ventured out. And when that changed for me, then I went, I was in probably about four or five other bands, playing trumpet, singing, playing a little keyboard, whatever the situation called for. After right. all that, and six bands later, right. uh, I signed with, uh, out of college, I got pulled out of my sophomore year, sophomore year of college, signed mm -hmm. with Barry White and RCA Records with a band called White Heat. Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah. White Heat lasted for a couple of years and uh, broke up. There were 13 guys with the roadies, and of the 13, we were living in Akron, Ohio, and of the 13, I wound up staying behind in Akron. Everybody left when the band broke up. I stayed. I'm still pursuing my music. That's when I decided I'm going to put my own band together. And I sat and I thought about what would get me. I wanted to be a producer, sure. more or less. But what's going to get me there the fastest? And I said, put together a, a good band where everybody plays more than one instrument. Everybody sings. Got a good looking band. Got to have a good looking band. Yeah. And something that's going to work. And more importantly than all of that, were guys with like minds, mm -hmm. meaning guys that felt like me, do or die. Right. Nothing else is going to stop this from doing it. And fortunately, I was blessed to pull together the six guys that the world got to know at Switch. Sure, absolutely. You've dropped so many pearls there. Um, for many, it would be a dream come true getting to work with Barry White. What were some of the things you felt you learned, but some of the things that you felt, gosh, you know, this isn't really kind of all that I thought it could be? The most profound thing I learned from that situation, which lasted from 1973 to 1976, was know what you're signing. Mm -hmm. We signed contracts. We never got a dime. Right. We wound up getting dropped. We were lost, and the sad thing of it is, is the name of the band initially was TNT Flashes. When Barry yeah, White signed us to RCA, he changed uh -huh. it to White Heat, and when he dropped the band, he took his name back. So we couldn't use the name even after that. Yeah. So that was the most profound thing I learned, you know. And so thereafter, I learned to read and write contracts backwards and forwards. Mm -hmm. In fact, various attorneys through the years have called me Gregory Williams Esquire because I know <laughs> how to do that. I had to learn how to do that. Yeah, I had told myself, you'll, you'll never be in that position again, so I learned. But anyway, that was 
the biggest thing above and beyond, I sat in the studio with Barry on various times, even while he was working on his albums, he let me sneak in. Right. And uh, I learned a lot about structure and, you know, about conducting orchestras and putting together all those things, even though I had it in my head, you know, sure. the actual being in front of it and watching it, you know, helped me learn a lot about that. So sure. those sure. are primarily the things that I picked up there. Mm -hmm. No, very helpful to know, because I think so often you hint at it, the challenges are really kind of knowing exactly what you're getting into and really being able to not sort of make that same mistake uh, again. What do you think sort of exists in the industry? Because it continues to go on today in terms of that, uh, I wanna be able to have artists in my roster, but I may not have either the time or the ability or really um, the ability to even nurture them from that legal perspective so that it doesn't turn into a, a situation of exploitation or bad contract or neglect. Um, it seems to be something that I don't know, is it just people want to be able to have uh, a large roster of people that may uh, be their protégés, or is there really a, I didn't really know contracts myself, so we just do what was done to us? Well, a couple of ways to look at that. One is this, first and foremost, I think artists, we as young talents, all we want to do is live our dream, perform. Right. And a lot of us aren't thinking business, yeah. you know? So you offer us something and we're gonna sign it and we're gonna move forward They're giving us an opportunity to reach our dreams. That's one aspect, whether there's management, business or whatever around, it is the music business, but a lot aren't paying attention to that. So they're willing to dive in. Now let's flip the other side of the coin. The more pots you have cooking on the stove, the more you have to eat. So that's with record companies. The more acts they sign, the more opportunities they have to win. Because right. some's going to win and some's going to lose. Right. So, and I find, I found over the years that there's a lot of, I'll say limited ethics. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. bottom line is the more you know, the less I can get from you. Right. So therefore the record companies thrive on that. The music industry thrive on the less the artists know. You know, so it's up to the artists, I dare say, to to try to figure it out or have somebody around them that can figure it out, you know, and have eyes in the back of their head because, you know, everybody doesn't have the ability. There are very few successful artists that were business people as well. Very few. There are some, but there are very few. And you either need to become that or you need to hire that. You need to have that in your arsenal right. or you lose. You know, you can get out there and sell millions of records. I'm telling you now, somebody's driving my Rolls Royce. <laughs> that I didn't get okay. I believe you know, but the whole thing of it, and I've been blessed. And much I'll tell you this: believe it or not, I signed with Motown in 1978. It took until April 1st. I'm talking about two weeks ago to get my very first royalty check to recording artist. I can believe it. I've... I had an attorney with me when I signed. Yeah, but. The whole thing of it is, is he knew with the group being new, we were, we were, we didn't have a lot of power. So we had to kind of make that deal work, you know, and he did work it out to our best advantage. But the whole thing of it is, is after he passed away, I had nobody else to represent. Some new things came into play and Motown wound up winning. Sure. You know, I mean, they, uh, they wanted my name. They, I named the group switch. Well, after Barry White had taken white heat back, I was not going to give Motown right. that. So, 
it wound up being a choice of Greg, you can either, and it was a heavy negotiation situation going and it froze up at a point, but uh, I told him I wasn't gonna give him my name. I told him that I'll go back to Grand Rapids and work in a factory before I give you my name. Right. And so they shut down negotiations for a couple of weeks, but then thereafter they came back, this is okay. In order for you to keep your name, we need all the publishing. Well, I didn't know the value of all the publishing at the time. And, you know, I, I wanted in. So anyway, right. the no. whole thing is, is it's the music business and right. it is about the business of it. And you got to recognize that. Other than that, you'll wake up later wondering what the heck happened. Right. Well, this is some of the key things we wanted to get to because so many kids, so many young people, like you said, they've got talent, they've got a desire and an energy that's incredible. And uh, the ability to actually translate that uh, into a contract that's valid and, and viable for the artist may not exactly be uh, what's being negotiated, even though, like you said, in this case, you had an attorney present and still it can be very complicated um, because I think you hit it on a key element. I'm not coming from the same position of power. Um, right. Moving forward, you're a teenager and you meet the DeBarge family. Tell us about that sort of experience, because even before you had formed Switch, you were already very familiar with uh, Bobby and the family. Well, more, a little more than familiar. We kind of came up together from age 15. We, Bobby and I were very close. Actually, I met Bunny first in school. Mm. You know? And uh, then later, maybe a year or so later, I met Bobby and Bobby and I immediately clicked. So therefore he's at my house, I'm at his house, you know, and we're participating in each other's family. So mine became his and his became mine. So all those siblings, you know. And uh, when I finally did put Switch together, uh, even though initially I had someone else in Bobby's role, I did go back and get Bobby before the thing even took off, right. you know, because it was important. I always wanted, and I was always gonna look out for Bobby anyway but the timing was one thing or another, you know, didn't make sense. But, and Bobby had some, he had some issues. Right. He had some issues and I didn't want to bring issues into a new group. So, but when the other guy refused to come, then it just sped up my process of going back to get Bobby anyway. And it just kind of worked out that way for us. Right. What are some of the things that you think drew you all together? I mean, large families, very musical families, beyond some of those obvious types of things, do you think those are some of the elements that that true love of music that just was raw? Absolutely. Absolutely. And not to mention, I mean, we got along. We had a lot of commonalities on personal levels as well. I mean, there were some deeper things going on in his household that went on in my household. But the bottom line is, we grew up poor. We, you know, we wanted to be somebody and we got dreams and hopes and, you know, and musical talent. We stood out, you know, there was a lot of talented kids around, but we stood out and we wound up clicking and, you know, supporting each other. And there was a point, like I said, there was like six bands before Switch and the last three before Switch, I was a young sought out trumpet player, not to mention I'm assertive, I'm aggressive, yes. you know, Bobby on a whole nother level is laid back and withdrawn and somewhat, you know, somewhat shy, not totally, but somewhat shy. So, you know, uh, I'd get offers to be in bands because I was always visible. Right. And uh, I told him, yeah, I'll join. But if Bobby can be a part of it, I'm not going without him. You know, and that was the situation. So we had a bond, man. We had a bond compared to none. Sure. Do you feel that super early on, just given how musical their family was, that you realized that, that, that it really was the voice? Because obviously he had other talents as well. 
um, in terms of the role he might play in the band. Yeah, absolutely. Him, the Bobby and Tommy, though. Come on. Sure. Both of them. I mean, yeah. when I finally sat there and put this vision together of who I wanted, they fit right in. Right. Just, just as Philip and Jet Eddie, because everybody does everything. And I think each of the guys in Switch could have stood on their own, right. you know, given the right opportunity and with the right guidance. But collectively, we made magic, thank God. Right. Do you sense that there was just some of this coming of age and maybe our society not being as uh, advanced as now as this show is called Music and Medicine that really uh, maybe did this interesting thing, sort of allowed uh, him to have a talented genius and yet also be maybe stressed and tortured at the same time? Because sometimes we see that in people that people call a genius. Yeah, and Bobby definitely had it too. And the thing is, is this. I think his genius was forced to the surface, to be honest with you, by certain aspects of his upbringing. You know, I mean, he dealt with some abuse, man, that's uncommon. Right. You know, I mean, mental, sexual, psychological, you know, at the hands of the one person he was supposed to trust. And, and not enforced, but not, uh, let's say, he had no support from, from mom there either, right. you know? I mean, for various reasons, not that she was neglectful, it was she was unaware to certain things and she was in denial, you know, as I look back at it. But anyway, those conditions forced him to find a place to hide. Right. Fortunately, he had a place to hide inside of him, in music, right. and he did. And in it, he excelled because right. that was his place of comfort. That was his place, you know, and, Fortunately, he was gifted from the beginning. And, you know, in that place, it, it became something really special. And that's what led, sadly enough, you know, those, those negative aspects is what also caused his life to be so short. But saying he had something special. Sure, yeah. You hear the passion and the musicality and it just comes across. It's why uh, so many of the songs are a soundtrack of our lives. Tell us about even maybe before Switch, what are, uh, we'll start with like one of your favorite songs from the early uh, early days and then we'll take a listen. What, one of what? Like either artists or just one of your songs before Switch that you still, or that you love. Um, that before you even formed Switch, uh, TNT Flashers, it could be from one of those days. Well, Stevie Wonders, I Love Every Little Thing About You, which we recorded as Switch and TNT Flasher. Mm. So that was one of, you know, sure. I think that's one of my favorites. A uh, couple of the things that we did that, you know, that Bobby and I wrote together, uh, still a, a song called I've Been So Lonely, which was released on a White Heat album, things like that. A lot of stuff that we did that the world never heard, but yeah. <laughs> I really good songs. Sure, sure. Yes, let's take a listen.
moving forward into um, Switch and just that name, uh, just tell us, even though we sort of have heard it, how um, that phrase that Susan DePass used helped you to have that click and that aha moment. Oh. Uh, what, the, what the name of the group you're asking? Sure. Right, because of, well, because of that comment that Susan DePass made. Oh, okay, yeah, again, you know, uh, in putting the group together, I wanted all of this. I saw all of this in each of these guys. Mm -hmm. And in putting our showcase together, and what I'm saying, referring to is everybody being able to do different things and shine on their own. So right. and we had to do a showcase for Motown. We had the deal, but they wanted to see what they got. And that included Barry Gordy, Smokey Robinson, Hal Davis, Suzanne DePass, and maybe about 20 other people, some songwriters and producers, Greg Wright, Brenton Sutton. There was a lot of people, Hal Davis. There was a lot of people involved with that showcase just to see Motown's new find. And in us knowing that we've got to give them half hour, 45 minutes of performance. So we want, we put together songs that I wrote, songs that Bobby wrote and, uh, and you know, uh, Jody, the three of us pretty much brought the songs to the table. We put together a show where everybody just did different things. One minute Bobby would be singing, the next minute Philip would be on the mic while I'm on the trumpet, while Eddie's on the uh, keyboard. Then Tommy comes up front and Jody gets off the drum, Bobby's on the drum. We were all over the place in this, in this 45 minutes, you know, singing you know, different things. Anyway, uh, Afterwards, they were complimenting us. Everybody was complimenting us and, you know, raving about what they had witnessed in Suzanne DePass in the course of saying how fantastic she thought we were. She says, I've never seen so much switching in my life. Right. And, oh, I, I got to digress for a second and say we had named ourselves first class initially before signing with Motown. I love but, the modesty. Uh, pardon? I love the modesty. Yeah. <laughs> that happened because... Jody and I flew first class to California for the first times in our lives. So anyway, uh, we found out that the name first class was already taken. So we needed a name. We didn't have a name when we were doing this showcase. We were trying to figure it out. And wow. then so Suzanne DePass makes that statement and it, the light bulb comes on, switch. Yeah. So that's yeah. how the name came about. And that's yeah. what we did. That was our mantra, you know, uh, because it also was our image, our whole her total package. We switched from one thing to the next. Sure. So I wanted to um, backtrack a second because uh, it's already a good enough distance from Grand Rapids to Detroit, which is where I thought you were doing the showcase. Tell us how you got to Los Angeles to do something like that, because that's an opportunity of a lifetime. Um, someone would think and was amazing to even get that far. How did you all get to do a showcase at Motown when you were back east? Actually, I pulled the group together. I got the money I needed on December 12th. I left Grand Rapids, I went to Akron. Right. December 12th, 1976. Okay. I left Grand Rapids, I went to Akron. I put the group, pulled all the guys that I had already picked together. Right. And we and I pulled Eddie and Philip out of Akron, Jody right. out of Steubenville, Tommy right. DeBarge and Melvin Clark out of Grand Rapids right. and brought everybody to Mansfield, Ohio. We spent maybe three weeks a little better in Mansfield, Ohio, working on the songs and cutting the demo. Right. After we cut the demo, maybe a week or so after, Jody and I uh, got money. In fact, he had a couple of girlfriends of his buy us airplane tickets. Right. And that's when we flew first class, is what sure. I'm telling you. Okay, right. to California to shop the deal. Right. Nine days into uh, California, we didn't have nobody. We had one tape, two man. 
Right. We had one team. We right. had no connections. Yes. But we were able to see the uh, president of RCA Records, who remembered us from White Heat, who mm -hmm. told us that he didn't hear the music. So mm -hmm. we walked out of there and uh, we went down to see a lawyer, friend of ours, at this building, which I later learned was Motown. We met Jermaine and Hazel on an elevator as we were leaving. Right. Okay. We give them the tape. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a whole story, in it, but we give them the tape. Right. Next day, Jermaine calls us. He, he tells us he loved the tape. What can we do? Well, we want a deal. Well, he gets us a deal with Motown. And when, to get, when we get the deal, they want to see us. So they have everybody else come out. It's in everybody else's bus tickets. Everybody else came out on Greytown, Grey, Greyhound. And that's how, that's how everybody got there.
because we talk about that whole thing of got us a deal, just tease that out for us a little bit, because again, it would be anybody's dream come true. And I remember the story that you were in the elevator, didn't give them the tape at that time, thought about it, caught them in the car before they left. But what exactly did that mean? Because so many times people will say that, oh, sure, sure, that this sounds great. I'll, I'll get back to you. And of course, it was amazing that they they called. But was it really, okay, this will be a chance to essentially um, do the showcase? Is that really what it meant, sort of getting a deal? Or boom, there's a whole contract that goes along with that? Well, quite frankly, showcase wasn't even an aspect of it. We had no idea that they would want to do that. And we were looking at the fact that we wanted to get a contract. And let me share something very personal, uh, not per personal in an overall sense about that time. Think yeah. about this. Mm -hmm. That was uh, February 1977 when we met Jermaine. Right. Earlier in 1976, Jermaine's brothers left him at Motown. Mm. He decided to stay when the brothers left and went to Epic. Right. So therefore, he was somewhat kind of alone. So when, at a point in time, Jermaine was trying to fill voids in his life. Yes. So he and Hazel decided, among other things, to start a management company. Right. And they happened to be, I find out later, they happened to be up in Motown that day looking at office space because mm -hmm. they were going to put their offices there. Right. So that's, you know, we, they didn't have acts. They didn't have anything going. They just had this new management company they wanted to start called Young Folks. Right. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, the grace of God, here we pop up with this one cassette tape we got. The only one you had. The only one we had. We were out of business after we left them with that one tape. They popped it in on the ride home. Sure. Okay. So we're filling a void for Jermaine as well as him filling a void for us. We give him a tape of some guys that he, uh, of, of some music he likes by right. some guys that he thinks are okay. Right. You know, after just meeting them. Sure. So with that in mind, uh, uh, he, when he called the next day, he's, you know, he's ready to see what we can do. So, but again, we weren't looking at a showcase. We were just looking at getting a record contract because I had told the guys, I had told the guys, I swear to you, before we left Mansfield, Ohio, I told the guys, we'll have a deal in two weeks. Wow. <laughs> I believe. Got, always got to be positive, especially if you're traveling first class to California. Gonna... <laughs> That was a very nice word to be positive. Good <laughs> Lord, man. Absolutely. <laughs> Name it and claim it, right? Bottom line. Bottom line. I love it. And tell us a little bit there too, because like you had hinted before, really stated the maybe having a lot of things cooking when an artist in that case is also trying to have a management company and just starting out and sort of trying to learn the business. But the uh, dad, father in this case is, is Barry Gordy. It, it also seems to be a challenge. There's no question he had talent being able to write, but that overseeing and really being able to walk the music through the process, also protect you at the same time, uh, also uh, move on with his personal life and juggle a management company seems to be a challenge for, for anybody, especially being sort of new in that side of the business as opposed to being a performer with a, with a, with a famous group. Right, where everybody else is taking care of everything for you, all you gotta do is play. Right. Yeah, he took on a, he and Hazel took on a totally different life, but fortunately they were successful at it through, right. well, with us, first of all, and then with other acts as well, so. Sure.
Absolutely. And then in terms of the relationship, because um, you've spoken to it before, um, Barry certainly was uh, very involved in the group and um, loved your music and you all formed a relationship. Tell us what some of that relationship was like, because it seems like there was also a, a different level, not only of, of, of respect, but just the way you all were able to work together and, and get things recorded. Absolutely. Barry loved us. I mean, and he took us under his wing. I mean, we would have our meetings, whereas a lot of them would happen at the office. We had our meetings at his house, you know, I mean, with <laughs> menus for meals and chess games and runs through the yard from one property to the next on that. And it was very personal right. that he, and not only that, on that first album, he was hands-on. People see that album cover and wonder who the Bewley brothers are. Mm. The Bewley brothers who co-produced that album, and that was Barry Gordy and Jeffrey Bourne, hands-on teaching us the ropes, more so Bobby and myself than everybody else, but teaching us the ropes because they saw something that made sense. And Barry's personal interests also extended beyond that where he would, like he'd call, he'd just pick up the phone and call two or three o'clock in the morning. It didn't matter, Greg, how you doing? What's going on with you? You know, things like that. <laughs> so it was, it was a wonderful, relationship with the Barry Gordy, not to mention the fact that since we were his kids, of course, no stops, you know, but he pulled out everything. He would tell them, for example, uh, we were almost finished with the first album and it was time to get an album cover out. Right. Get album cover done, excuse me. So we go and we do a photo session with the art department and all that. Barry sees it, hates it. He called a meeting. There must have been about a dozen people, staff members at this meeting. Right. And he cursed people out about mm -hmm. that cover. He said, you don't do this to my act. Mm -hmm. He made us go back maybe three, four days of shooting, four or five days of shopping, wow. hair, makeup, everything. And it was a fashion photographer, high-end, I can't think of his name, at the time, high-end fashion photographer that shot the cover that everybody ultimately wound up seeing the, the pink and black cover with all the pictures on it right. yeah and that was Barry being Barry and not having something for anything less but his group as he called us sure so, and yeah, even there, that common thread that you we kind of touched on Barry Jermaine and now Barry there was also a distinction even there despite his being very very hands-on there were some groups that were signed that there was no way to also provide them or at least they didn't necessarily get as much of this hand-holding so to speak or this more intimate um, relationship that may have really helped to form a first class uh, type of presentation and publication um, the Jackson Brothers or uh, Ozone um, tell us sort of about the challenges that it, again even being at his level and with all the resources that a record label or that you may have seen could be a challenge as a as a manager or even a CEO to manage multiple acts and get them all out with the same level of panache we'll put it that way um, that you all were afforded being kind of the Gordy picked group yeah and, and see that's something I discovered while I was there too if you were on that Gordy label or if you were brought in by one of those family members, and at the time there was Fuller, there was Anna, there was Gwen, there was Robert, you know, and of course Barry, and then there was Ray Singleton, who was Barry's wife. And so if you were brought in by any of these people, your treatment was first class. Right. 
If you were not brought in by any of these people, you had to fight your way through. Fortunately, the Commodores right. was able to do that. Fortunately, an act like Dynamic Superiors were able to get a hit. Fortunately, Thelma Houston under Al Davis, who right. was part of the corporation that built the Jackson 5, among other hits, you know, we got through. Tina Marie, Rick James, Rick. Jermaine Jackson, Switch, High Energy. We were Barry's babies. We were the Motown babies. And we got the treatment. I mean, I saw people sitting in the lobby when I first walked in there that was still sitting in the lobby five years later when I left. Right. You know, one, signed to the company, but nothing yeah. happened. You yeah. know, things like that. So, yeah, yeah it, 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 being with the Gordy family, being tied in or being brought in through those people definitely gave you preferential treatment. True. But the fact that Barry's daughter uh, uh, brought us to the label, come on. And sure. his son, his prize son, Jermaine Jackson, son-in-law. Yeah, come on. Sure. We got yeah. it. it we blood. Sure. And would you say, was everybody always hears that it's all about relationships, that that illustrated it even more because there just either wasn't a way or it just didn't occur to be able to have the resources to put to every single group. Like you said, you sense that some are going to make it, some aren't, and there just isn't the ability to redo photo shoots completely and custom artwork and cover a tour and mount all the expenses that's needed to get multiple acts all up and launched and keep them going and then deal with all the personal dynamics that happen in groups uh, all right. at the same time. Right. Yeah, no, the, and the thing of it is, it's, it's not possible. You're very fortunate. We were very fortunate and acts like us that do cut through are very fortunate because, I mean, excuse the expression, but we do come a dime a dozen. There's so many talented people out there wanting to get in. No, you've got to be the right place, the right time with the right people with the right attitude. So all those things have to fall into play. And then you've got to have a whole lot of prayer in you. Sure. to get through so sure in terms of the tenacity there's no question that you had it what what challenges do you feel um you wish that the group was able to sort of overcome to be able to make it through because it, just getting signed and even getting the album done is still almost at the beginning all the work that still has to be done to continue to have hits go on the road promote and things of this nature um challenge so many groups what what pearls might you have from some of the things that you all went through for for other groups that have those ups and downs internally as well as externally well i think the main thing is staying true to what you got because you're going to run into issues and hurdles and all kinds of things not to mention personality conflicts and things like that you know I mean, everyone is not from the same household and even everyone, if they were from the same household, it's still a whole bunch of individual, as I tell my daughter, you know, everyone has their own agenda. Yes. You know, despite the fact, if even if their agenda is making sure you're happy, it's still their agenda. Yes. So they think uh, with their thoughts versus yours. So therefore you have to find a way to adjust and adapt and get along, you know, through that. and. Besides that, I think the main thing is staying true to what you came there for, despite whoever don't go along with it, you know, not to the point where you rebel in a group and break it up, but to the point where you stand your ground, make your point and accept some here and give some there. Sure. You know, I think those are the, the, the major things that one can do to sustain and get through this madness and don't give up no matter what. Because I also say, there's an audience for every kind of creativity. I don't care what it is. I like that. There's an audience for it. 
And maybe you don't find your audience on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, but if you stick around on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, who knows? And even if not, Sunday's still there. What about right. next week? So right. the bottom line is don't give up on it, no matter what you're doing. Find a way to hone your craft, make it tighter, get better, but you know, hang in there.
in what ways did you find yourself sort of really uh, in that role of really trying to manage the group and then even your relationship with Bobby so that it wouldn't be uh, implosive? Because it was always a concern that this might be too, uh, how should we say it, tumultuous to be able to help the group stay together if someone is um, really dealing with challenges on one hand, but then also wants to be um, the lead and in charge of everything else on the other. Well, you know, the whole thing is, is I've remained about the whole, which included the individual parts, but I remained about the whole. So anytime one of the parts went a little wayward in working for the whole, I was able to bring it together until I wasn't able to anymore. I knew, as I said, I had another guy in my group, although Bobby was my friend and I loved him as my brother, but I had another guy in originally because I knew Bobby's issues were insurmountable and would be at some point in time a detriment, especially to a group, because you got all these things you got to look out for. So with that in mind, uh, I dealt as long as I could. I dealt with as much as I could in trying to keep the madness from beating him down. But uh, I told the guys from the very beginning when I had to take him after Arnie didn't come, when I had to put Bobby in, I told the guys, we better ride this for what it's, what it's worth because it's not going to last long. Mm-hmm. I told them that. I mean, and that's just my insight. Sure. And it did not. Fortunately, we got five albums out of Motown. But still, this should have been a whole career. I was looking at an Earth, Wind & Fire career, Rolling Stones career, you know, right. like that. But uh, we made it last as long as we could because we did the best we could with what we were working with. Sure. You know, and a lot of it wound up resting on Bobby's shoulders. I mean, it's a super talented cat. All these guys were extremely talented, but Bobby did have a special. I mean, Bobby, you know, he had that thing. So uh, Barry Gordy invested in that, believing in, you know, and his way of doing things, because he always did pull one out of a group, Diane out of Supreme, Smokey out of the Miracles. So I, I expect nothing different and learn to accept that for what that was. But the thing is, is uh, it was important to me, again, that the whole survived. Right. And we did as long as we could. And when it couldn't no more than, you know, it was what it was. Fortunately, right. I was able to pick it back up and roll on with it years later as well. So did you find was that? heard some of these things said that you maybe felt like you had to um, protect um, Barry and sort of not let him know or see certain types of things because it's just important sometimes that home business be, you know, kept off to the side and not come as in the early stages, in the early stages as much as I could. But, you know, as we grew, you know, uh, as we begin to have money, as we begin to have fame, as we begin to have more friends, as we begin to have more people in our ears, we became more individuals than a unit. And so there was only so much containment that I could have after that. You know, when when people are picking up the phone and calling me in the middle of the night and saying, Greg, where's Bobby, what's he doing? And I don't know, you know, I can't answer that. So I can't contain, you know, so, you know, all the walls came down. There was no shelter and there was no hiding. This is what it is. Now, how do we deal with it? It's a question. Sure. And a couple of yeah. times in the course of it, it was like, uh, he should leave the group and I don't want him in the group. And Greg, I ain't in with you guys no more. But we fixed that. Our friendship allowed us to fix that. Our love as brothers 
despite the difficulties of being in a group together, our love as brothers allowed us to come back together, you know. And even before he passed, even after switch, even after the bad things happened with his life, the prison and all that, and AIDS, we still came back together. In fact, a lot of people don't know. But Bobby spent the last six weeks of his life in hospice with the, with the AIDS. But he spent the last three months before that living in my house. You know, and I helped him work on his album and get other things done. You know, because we were brothers first and foremost. And the hell with the rest of all this other stuff. And it was forgive and forget and let's move on because we, you know. Right. No, I remember when you first shared that with me, um, first started talking months ago, and it was, I found that so um, touching because as you stated, I think that that's been your core principle all throughout, despite um, what this person may say or that, the facts are that you were dedicated to the group and definitely dedicated to Bobby um, throughout uh, the entire journey, despite the fact that things definitely became tumultuous and um, very difficult uh, at some points. And I know that there were definitely, you know, these uh, heavy arguments and things of that nature as well that uh, people don't want to have to have. And yeah, but bottom line to all that too is this, we loved each other, period. Yeah. We had differences in our personalities, right. you know? So we had different situations to deal with that we saw fit to deal with and we needed to work with and work out. And it made us bump heads sometimes. That didn't stop the love. That just was get out of my face for the time being. That's right. all. <laughs> and do you think, um, talk about sign of the times that um, just when it comes to the medicine aspect of the show, that um, that was part of it, really knowing how to uh, deal with these things, how to deal with abuse, discuss it, deal with um, drugs and get help and rehab, just really understanding what it means to be able to step away from the limelight and, and work through those issues, which is something not only in our community, but just in general in the industry too, that really wasn't uh, you know as, as accepted and, and as um, common as it may be a little bit more now. Yeah, and that was a detriment. Uh, overall, it was a detriment because a lot of the personal things that Bobby and his siblings endured you want to keep that hidden. Whereas today, no, you want to talk about it. You got to talk about it. You'll never get any kind of resolution until you do. You know, and fortunately, the world has changed to the point where the level of acceptance of all things is much more vast than it was with the closed mind back then. Right. But psychologically, bottling things up like that can only implode, cause you to implode. You know, and that's what Bobby did, and that's what his siblings sadly continue to do, you know, because it gets to a it got to a point with them where there's no way out. I would love to believe that as long as you're alive, there's a way out. But I mean, some situations are so bleak in so many people that they can't see that far. And that was the situation with them. Had Bobby and his siblings gotten some help earlier, it would have been a whole nother world, you know, for them. But Sadly, he didn't. Some people have a sense that the drug sometimes can even fuel creativity and things of that nature. What would you say to that or somebody that thinks that maybe that's just something that goes along part and parcel with such genius and such creativity? Yeah, I mean, in a lot of situations, maybe it does for a lot of people. I mean, because it, it uh, brings down inhibitions mm -hmm. and stops giving, it, it, it deletes excuses as to why you can't, okay? You know, 
So yeah, I think in certain people's lives, I think their creativity became greater while they were on drugs, but I don't think because of drugs. Because right. I think ultimately drugs destroy. Right. And I think ultimately it takes away more than it gives. You know, I mean, and I think that's been proven time and time again. I have so many friends that are industry and non-industry that I've seen come and go to drugs or destroy their lives and destroy their relationships with their families and things like that. So I'll never say uh, give drugs any kind of right. applause on any level. I had my short three years in, involved with it, knowing every day of those three years, this is not who you are. This is not what you're about. You know, okay, it might have been fun in the beginning and it might be some. And, and, and the sad thing about it, and I'm sure now, uh, the industry, it just runs rampant. It's just so easily accessible, you know? But you within yourself gotta have to fight and decide that that's not the way to go, you know? And what do you think are some of those drivers? I mean, I've heard everything from, you know, some of the people that are on the road to some of the people that are behind the scenes, in the scenes, there's people that push and run every which way. Is it just um, because that those uh, people are always going to be able to find their way and then ultimately, you know, get their victims um, Two people seeking each other out that, that ultimately you couldn't have stopped it no matter what? I think that. Let's say that's true. And entertainment, as we both know, it's fascinating. Right. And there are hangers on in all aspects of it. They just are. Well, many of the drug dealers, they want to be who we are. So they want to be with us. And so it will always be there, man. It's forever going to be there. But the thing of it is, is, is if you've got the right people in your corner too, uh, if you're fortunate enough to have that, then they can maybe help keep that away because it's going to be there forever present. And, you know, yes, you got to be, you have it in your mind too, but you're not going to be that person. Like I was telling you about me, I knew I wasn't going to be that person long. I got caught in the rain. I went out without an umbrella and got caught in the rain. Okay. I had a good sense to find an awning and awning and get up under it and stay up under it, you know, and I hope that for everybody that goes that, that way, because, you know, drugs destroy. Right. Without trying to overemphasize the church, have you sensed that that's been an ongoing, more subtle battle? Because so often, if someone grows up in the church and they're singing and things of that nature, you see this uh, don't go into the secular world and a tremendous struggle, um, probably greatest exemplified maybe with someone like Marvin Gaye, um, where his dad was a pastor. Um, there's that tremendous challenge of really not wanting their children, so to speak, to, to go into a world that is definitely going to, as you said, have um, sex, drugs, and maybe some rock and roll. Well, you know what, but I see that as, well, personally, I see it as wrong. Yeah, the church does have such a dominant, uh, plays such a dominant role in a lot of people's hearts and minds, and especially a lot of them that come into entertainment you know, because of its limitations. I think it's somewhat broader now mm -hmm. than it used to be. I think it's so much more uh, forgiving, so to speak, than it, than it used to be back then. But the main thing of it is, is I think one needs to be able to live free and do what they do and flourish however they flourish. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're gonna live by religious teachings and Bible teachings, Still, it shouldn't stop you from going into music. It should just give you more grounding to not do the things that destroy you in the course of that journey. Right. But I think that's, I do think that's down to the individual as well, ultimately.
Absolutely. You developed so much insight over the years being in the industry. I want to make sure we do do credence, even though we covered a few of the elements of your book. Um, just tell us about some of the inspiration behind that, the story of your life, um, Switch, the Barge, uh, Motown Me. Um, it's been so widely received and um, we want to definitely um, do a shout out and a thank you for part one. We're waiting anxiously for part uh, two, going. but uh, talk to us about some of your inspiration and, and some of the key reasons why you wanted to be able to, uh, to share this. Well, I th first of all, I thank you for acknowledging that as you have. And I've lived with this story. I've been, th these stories, I've lived with them and I've held on to them. Fortunately, uh, uh, I was able to remember and put them in proper order on my own, you know, because there's so many good, bad, ugly situations that have happened in the course of my life in the course of this music. But I needed to tell it for a multitude of reasons. I needed the people to, that I've loved over the years that did not know or that may have questioned, because I won't say did not know, because I'm pretty verbal about that, but may have questioned the extent I think a lot of that got explained in the book. I, a lot of people that wanted to know, well, how'd you get there? What'd you do? The road did you travel? And I was happy to explain that, you know, in this book. But also the things that I've learned, I needed to share because there are a whole lot of little chocolate kids like me that want to do what I do, you know? And they don't have a roadmap. I was out there on my own. And not only that, until we got with Motown, I didn't really have anybody to direct and guide. And even with the direction and guidance I got at Motown, it was based on their financial gain, not based on my individual need. Right. So the whole thing of it is, is I felt the need to share some of the ups and downs that I went through. So at least there's somewhat, it'll give you some footwork as to uh, what you can expect, even though it's a different time, a different era, and there's different ways, but the game don't change, just the players do. Sure. So with that in mind, you know, to share this insight, you know, is just my privilege to be able to do it. So there was a whole lot of reasons why I wrote this book and wanted to get all of this off my chest. But, and fortunately after 544 pages of that, that's, you know, I've still got a lot more to say. I had to stop there. So sure. anyway, that's good. Um, book two, book two yeah. is in the works. I'm taking good. my time, though, but it is right. in the works. That's, that's what I wanted to ask you. And um, we know you continue to perform. Tell us about um, sort of the newer addition uh, to the group and um, how that's been, because I know now you continue to write and um, we continue to enjoy the wonderful music that you produce. Been blessed, my friend. Been blessed, fortunately. Uh, after Switch broke up in 1983, that was, Switch was split up at Motown, but we did one more album at Total Experience, and that was half of us. And uh, after that album, I just couldn't do it anymore. After losing Bobby, Tommy, Philip, I didn't want to do it anymore at that point. Not that I didn't want to do music anymore, I just didn't want to do Switch anymore because it wasn't that same thing. So I wound up going off into management. I managed the Skinny Boys. I managed High Five. I managed SWV for a short stint. Uh, Elder Barge later, you know, I managed quite a few actors. Michelle Thomas, who was uh, uh, Myra on Family Matters and Justine on the Cosby Show. That's my niece. Oh. Her dad is DT from Cooling the Gang. Oh, anyway. okay. 
Yeah, but uh, I managed quite a few acts. But I, after a while, I missed the performing. I missed my group, per se. You know, and uh, after producing a few acts with Voice to Men and TLC and a few others, I decided it's time to put Switch back together. But I couldn't find anybody sound enough like Bob. Right. I couldn't, you know, the guy that I had replaced, I love him dearly uh, for that uh, last album on Total Experience. I love him dearly, but he wasn't Bobby. It, it, it wasn't close enough. It took me almost 30 years to find somebody close enough to Bobby for me to say, I'll go back and do this again. And what I did was find Akili Nixon, yes, who is currently uh, a head lawyer on the uh, California Bar Association, yeah. for, well, for the state of, of California, mm-hmm. and uh, a noted attorney, actually, but sings his butt off. He sounded yeah. close enough, you know, to these records to make this thing happen. He's a damn good singer in his own right, yes. you know, so I think folks will like him. And... Uh, he and I wrote around, he and I wrote, and me and he and the other guys produced the single we dropped a couple of years ago, I Love You More. There's yeah. more in the can, we're gonna keep going. And like that. And also I did want to also share that the guitar player for Switch, who also came in 2003 is when I got a key, when I put the group back together. Yeah. Okay, Philip and Eddie, original members came back with me. Okay. Also at that point. Switch's original guitar player. He was not a member, but he's the guitarist on They'll Never Be, on Best Beat, on right. pretty much all the hits. He was with us that whole five years, Michael yeah. McGlory. So he's a part. So now there's actually the nucleus of Switch. It's Akili Nixon, Michael McGlory, Philip Ingram, Eddie Fluellen, and myself. And we're working. We've been working. In yeah. fact, uh, we've got something coming up in California in another month. You yeah. know, not a whole lot of dates, anywhere from 12 to 24 in the course of the year, but we're working that's sure. well. and, and we're so delighted tell us about the feeling of appreciation that you have for just the rediscovery um so many groups just like ours is are reaching out to you and asking for interviews and the music we're now finding some of those first hits uh that could have even been more of a hit um and giving it uh that airplane things like that partly due to uh covid because we had more time in our hands to start to go back and say wait a minute there were there were more songs than just the ones we know um tell us sort of how that feels and and your thoughts about it because i think that it's a sign um without putting put words in your mouth that good music can never die thank you yeah i i feel so fortunate and we are so blessed me and my brothers are to have this there is somewhat of a resurgence or acknowledgement of who we are and what we do. And uh, for example, I mean, that Shaft movie that came out a couple of years ago, they, uh, the, the movie opened and closed with Love Over and Over Again by Switch, which was something fascinating. Just now, there's a new movie out, an animated feature, The Proud Family, where uh, uh, Oscar Proud, the father, holds up the cover of a Switch album as, as he relates to his dating days. So a lot, not to mention, man, one of the biggest gifts that I could have gotten last year mm-hmm. in September of uh, last year, 2021, right. Drake dropped a single called No Friends in the Industry. Right. In that single, he sampled I Call Your Name. Mm-hmm. I am a co-writer of I Call Your Name with Bobby. Yes. So not to mention does the acknowledgement continue, especially with the young artists who were all there are there are much more samples and things than than just that. 
sure. but that's a biggie right there. Right, right. And yeah. you know, and there's there's so much attention now that a lot of the young artists are on to us as well. So it's it's just a blessing for this resurgence and this for this acknowledgement of our music. Sure. We've really made a mark and yeah. I'm thankful. On that note, just to highlight it. What are, if you feel comfortable addressing just a few of those elements, be it um, natural instruments, being recording in a studio together, um, be it really not using um, complete digital devices, auto-tune, things of that nature, that makes the music timeless, in your opinion? I've always said this, there's magic in fellowship. You get a group of people together on one accord, magic happens. That's what our music and most music of that day was all about that makes it stand out. I don't do discredit or diminish what uh, artists, writers, producers are doing today because that too is an art form of this era of this element. Right. But there are certain things that our era and our genre hell that can never be duplicated. So therefore, it's still there to be uh, admired and respected and appreciated, you know. And it's so important now that even these artists today look back, or they won't know where the heck they're going. Yes, that's important. Yes. Okay. Last question, I promise. Um, the show's called Music and Medicine. Some people say music as medicine. What does that mean to you? Well, music is medicine, if you ask me. I mean, it's good for the soul and good for the mind and, you know, good for communication. It helps one be able to say things and realize things that they just couldn't come up with on their own. So it, it you know, I dare say without music, life is a mistake. <laughs> okay, <laughs> intense but serious, yeah. And, and I'm glad you have me on here too. I, I, I'm open to talk about the medical aspect as well, yes. because you know, at this point in time in my life, I'm dealing with some things. You know, fortunately, I'm in good order. You know, and uh, uh, moving forward, but it's all important. You know, that we be of sound mental and physical health. You know, thank God I got my music to help me get through it all too. So. Right. Absolutely. And it sounds like in some ways it has been a hero or heroine in your own life. Like you said, um, there have been lots of ups and downs as we'll all experience. We rely on the soundtrack of your music to literally help us get through our lives as well. And um, it's always amazing when we hear that the artists feel like it really can sort of help them get through uh, a lot of the things and challenges that life faces. Oh, by all means, by all means. Well, thanks so much. It's been such a pleasure and so insightful. I hope that you'll let us continue to keep in touch. I'd love to reach out to Akili and so forth. And um, yeah. it just is, um, you know, wonderful to not only have the experience, but the, the shared learnings, our hope, and through, I'm sure, all the interviews that you've done is that we really appreciate, like you said, where we've come so we know where we're going, but really sort of understand some of these things. Some have been mistakes, some were lessons that needed to be learned so that we could do better and in the future and we can't if we don't understand um, but we can learn uh, from people who've 
taken these journeys already because there are some things to still say the same like you said uh, being able to read a contract and being able to have representation and being able to realize that it, it, there's a business side to it um, despite the fact that the creative is also important and um, so much time you've been dedicated to the same mission throughout to produce wonderful beautiful music and um, to think after all these years when, when you first had that maybe even before the age of nine um, we're still benefiting from uh, the soundtrack and some of the songs you've written and it, the groups you put together is it's a, it's a blessing and we thank you sincerely I thank you so much i appreciate being on here and the opportunity to share and i welcome the opportunity to come back maybe sure. sometimes you can get me and the, and the other guys on together huh sure. <laughs> sounds good no absolutely and definitely we're looking forward to part two of that book <laughs> okay thank it's fun so much thanks so much mr williams thank, thank you, you.